In the name of the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you all today. I did ask the dean if he had reviewed the lectionary before inviting me. (laughs) The beheading of John the Baptist. That's our gospel. The question is, why did Mark include it? Surely, the fact of John's death could have been conveyed absent the graphic details. So what's the point? New Testament scholar Mark Davis suggests this gospel echoes Hebrew scripture stories about sovereigns from Esther and 1 Kings. If this is true, then the focus of this gospel may not be John the Baptist, but rather the sovereign, Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. Mark takes the sovereign motif from Hebrew scripture and adds both a new level of violence and a new level of humanity. Herod makes the sovereign relatable. Here is a man of great power giving credence to a half-crazed desert prophet clearly caring for him, then ordering his execution. Herod is, in a word, complex. It is, I believe, the story of this complex sovereign that compelled Mark to include this detailed account of John's death. Now, Herod's story is told not as a present-moment, blow-by-blow account, and this is a critical detail to notice. The story, rather, is a tale told over Herod's shoulder, looking back at a past event. The scene begins after John's beheading, when Herod has heard rumor of Jesus. He is convinced upon hearing about Jesus, that John has come back to life in Jesus. Hearing about Jesus takes him back to John's death. And we hear the rest of the story as a kind of flashback to past events. We are looking back with Herod at this choice that he has made. And the way the story unfolds is unsatisfying in that it's not a predictable or formulaic narrative. Herod was perplexed by John, yet liked to hear him, protects him, and then gives the command to execute him. It's a hard plot twist to accept. There's a gap in there. What motivated Herod to behead John? He appears to be constrained by competing loyalties. That's something we can appreciate. In the moment Herodias sent her request through her daughter, Herod saw that he was caught between two choices, each of which had some intrinsic value to him. Keeping his oath, a very important value for a sovereign in his culture, 
and protecting the prophet. His choice was not merely a heartless act of violence. Such moments rarely are that simple. Herod lived between two worlds, the world of his spiritual yearning that both perplexed him and attracted him to John, and the world of his position, a world shaped by his father, Herod the Great, the king who ordered the slaughter of the innocents in an attempt to kill the baby Jesus. Maybe Herod was damaged by the trauma of his youth. Maybe Herod was a good man, shaped by the madness around him. There surely was more than one side to him. But one side prevailed in the moment he gave the command to behead John. And now he lived looking back over his shoulder at a grief that consumed him. The Greek word Mark uses to name Herod's grief is found in only one other place, namely to describe Jesus' grief at Gethsemane, a grief born out of the deepest love. Herod's grief exposed a love for John that had never left him. This this moment is Mark's gift to us in today's gruesome story. The moment when we find ourselves looking back at choices we have made that we regret. Choices that reflect the complex web of loyalties and relationships that sometimes keep us from acting in alignment with our heart's desire. We may not have beheaded a prophet, but every one of us has made choices we regret. They live in us like unsatisfying stories with gaps that we cannot explain, sometimes even to ourselves. When we look back over our shoulders, are not these the moments we grieve? If we could, would we not change them? These are the times in our lives that lead to self-doubt, sometimes even to self-loathing. It's easy for us to put Herod in the category of unlovable people and just leave him there. His father was a baby killer. He gruesomely beheaded someone who had been his teacher. He's one of the bad guys. If we can dismiss him and others like him, then we can oversimplify the world, categorizing people, the good and the bad. And that works in the short run. It even helps us categorize those parts of ourselves that we don't want to understand and love. But what if even Herod is worthy of love? What if he is worthy of a narrative true to his complex reality rather than a one-dimensional caricature? What if Everyone we want to name as untouchable, unreachable, be they sovereigns or ordinary people. What if they are all worthy of love and of a narrative that honors their complexity? What if the parts of ourselves that we want to shun, to deny, to hate, what if those parts of us are worthy too? What would it be like? For us to allow another to love us even there, 
in the shadow lands of our deepest regret. No story brings this question into sharper relief than that of Sister Helen Prejean and Matthew Poncelet, told in the movie Dead Man Walking. Matthew was a man on death row for the brutal murder of two teenagers in the woods of Louisiana in the 70s. While he was on death row for the crime, Sister Helen began to visit him and became his spiritual advisor. She gave Matthew no passes for what he had done, even as she fought the injustice of the death penalty itself. She spoke of the righteousness of God to Matthew and she loved him. That kind of love is both perplexing and attractive to us, just as John's teaching was to Herod. It is the substance of our salvation. Salvation is what happens when God brings our most painful truths into the embrace of his most tender mercy. As today's psalm says, in the salvation of God, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And just to be clear, the mercy of God does not remove the plumb line of justice to which Amos refers in today's Old Testament reading. It does not call us away from seeking righteousness in our lives or justice in the world. In fact, Amos' prophecy highlights the relationship that does exist between mercy and justice. It was specifically because King Jeroboam was cruel in refusing to grant economic mercy to his subjects that Amos prophesied, asserting that justice was absent because the king showed no mercy to his people. Our work for justice must be grounded in the mercy of God's unconditional love. Otherwise, we can become punitive and cruel. It is not possible to live without causing harm. It is not possible to construct a life absent painful truths. Not one of us is exempt over a lifetime from the profoundest grief over the things we have done and left undone. The question is, when we look back over our shoulders and bear the grief of those memories, what do we hope to see? What face do we expect? The face of judgment, of shame, or indifference? Perhaps the face of ignorance or denial or cynicism. Whose face do we expect? Just before Matthew was put to death, Sister Helen said to him, I want the last face you see in this world to be the face of love. So you look at me when they do this thing to you. I'll be the face of love for you. This is the face Matthew Poncelet gazed upon as he took his last breath, the face of love. This is the face that perplexed and attracted Herod and John, even though he later betrayed Jesus, the face of love. 
The face of love looks back at us even when our stories like Herod's do not resolve for good. Unconditional love is just that, love without conditions. It comes even when we betray Jesus, as Herod later did. When Jesus said as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, one of the people he was speaking of was Herod. The story finally is not about us and what we may have done or left undone. It never has been. It's about God's mercy. Like Herod, we have multi-layered histories and alliances that create in us all manner of mixed motives and proclivities to sin, guided by our histories, our memories, and our wounds We make choices we regret. We bear the consequence of profound grief for things done and left undone. We participate in systems and structures of a world we cannot bear to watch unfold in the news, and yet we are beholden to many of its powers and principalities. We are complex people indeed. It is our souls, our complex souls that Jesus saves. Not at the expense of seeking justice, nor by reducing the mixture of good and evil that resides in us, nor by denying the truth of our actions, but by holding that truth of who we are together with the mercy that has always been there for us. There is a moment, one eternal moment, when everything we have done or left undone and everything we have longed to be lie down together. In that moment, all manner of thing is well, and righteousness and peace kiss. Looking back over our shoulders, From the vantage point of that moment, the only face we see is love.